What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, the, the author, Rudyard Kipling, once wrote this. I had six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names were where and what and when and why and how and who. Questions. As we tackle Romans 9 to 11, there are several big questions. Uh, some of them are in the text themselves and other questions are the questions that we bring to it, the questions we have and some of you have sent questions to me over the last week, and I'm very grateful 
for them. We really love it when people engage with us over the sermons, so please do keep sending them in. And as Robin mentioned earlier on, uh, next week, if you are here in the evening service, if you, if you come on to Zoom, after the um, uh, update about how we're going to come back to meet together, we're going to have a Q&A on the chapters of Romans 9 to 11. Uh, so if you've had questions during the series, you've got questions that come up after tonight or next week, please do tune in on Zoom and ask away. Now here are some of the questions that we've already heard from this little series. Will God keep his promises? Will he keep his promises to his church, given that it looks like his promises to Israel perhaps haven't been kept? That was the big question that Paul began with. Then we had this one. Is God right to choose some people to receive his mercy and others to be hardened by him? And is God fair in holding people accountable for their sin when he is sovereign over salvation? How can God be sovereign over human beings and at the same time human beings make real meaningful choices in their lives? These are the big questions and they have deep answers And what we saw last time was it's important to ask those questions, but to ask them with a humble heart. We come recognising that God is God and we are not. He's the creator, we're the creature. He's the potter, we're the lumps of clay. So let's humble ourselves now as we come before him, as we pray. The Lord God says this in Isaiah chapter 66. Speaking of creation, he says, All things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles. That's my word. Lord God, we humble ourselves before you and your word this evening. We thank you for it. Lord, help us to understand it well. Help us to accept it. Help us to believe it, for your glory's sake. Amen. Now, when watching the rugby over the weekend, uh, it's again obvious that that there's a big difference uh, to your understanding when you see different camera angles on things. When the referee's got a complicated decision to make, a disputed try, he wants to know, did he get the ball down? Did his foot go into touch? Did he have a forward pass? And so he turns to the video ref and he views things from different camera angles to get the full picture. The truth is discerned more clearly by seeing the various perspectives. As we come to these verses in chapters 9 and 10, we need to notice that the Apostle Paul's camera angle has shifted in order to help us see the whole picture. See, in the first 29 verses of chapter 9 that we've looked at over the last three weeks, the camera was firmly pointed at God, at his ultimate sovereignty over salvation. But now at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10, we see a different perspective. The camera shifts. It shifts from pointing at heaven to pointing to earth and to the human perspective with regard to salvation. We have a shot of human responsibility. 
Now keep that in mind. It's not a different question. It's a different angle on the answer. What we see here in chapter 10 is complementary to what we've seen before in chapter 9 about God's plan of salvation. It fills out the whole picture for us. Now, if you have the service sheet handy, or you can see it on on a phone or something like that, you'll see that I've put the particular question that the Roman church are asking and which Paul addresses in this passage. It's in chapter 9, verses 30 to 31. And the question I've distilled is this, how can it be right that there are more Gentiles than Jews in God's people? That's what the church are asking and Paul seeks to explain. See, Paul's just said in verse 25 to 27 that the Old Testament predicted that there would be many Gentiles saved and only a remnant of the Jewish people saved. Now that reflected the reality of the church as they looked around in Paul's day, but it still would have been a big shock to see that in black and white. And it needs more explanation. So here's our question in view, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. It doesn't seem right, does it, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness find themselves declared right with God and in God's people. They hadn't previously had any interest in God, any regard for him or his ways. They were living obviously godless lifestyles, yet they're included and get right standing with God. And then Israel, who did at least try to pursue righteousness through keeping God's law, who did look more morally upright, well, they end up, on the whole, failing to attain right standing with God and end up, apart from a remnant, outside God's people, his church. Doesn't seem right. Why does this happen to the Jews? That's the question. Why? And Paul's answer here is not with reference to God's sovereignty, though of course he believes that's true, he's just told us that in chapter 9, but with reference to human responsibility to respond to God. Chapter 9, verse 32 to 10, verse 4 holds the answer. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul says that the reason so many of his own people missed out on right standing before God is because they pursued their own righteousness, which was based on works, instead of pursuing it by faith. Paul here quotes from two places in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah 28. And this is an Old Testament passage about God's judgment upon the rebellious leaders of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. 
See, they presumed that because of their religious observance and their privileged position, that they would escape God's judgment. And God says that they are fools. And he specifically says that he will lay a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, a foundation stone, upon which he will build his people. The stone is a person, you see that, whoever believes in him. This stone is God's Messiah, the king that he will send to them. And this king would be their salvation if they would believe in him, if they would build their lives upon him, if they place their faith on him then on the day of judgment, there would be no shame on their parts. For God would look on his perfect record and grant them access to his kingdom. But God God declares that instead they will stumble over him, that Christ will be offensive to them. And of course, if you were to read the accounts, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, then this is exactly what you would see. You see, Christ is offensive to all those who trust in their own righteousness. Those who trust in their own righteousness are pleased with their performance. They're proud to have done what's right. And so they believe that they are owed something in life in response to their good deeds. They are in charge of things, God owes them. And yet here comes Christ claiming to be the king, a king that they must submit to, who doesn't do what they wish. Here is Christ who says that their good deeds are worth nothing in terms of their salvation and that he must die for their sins. Here comes Christ who says that if they get anything good from God in this life or eternity... It is out of sheer mercy alone because he chooses to give it, not because they've done anything to earn it. And so they are offended at him. They stumble over him. And this grieves Paul's heart. Now notice that Paul's faith in God's sovereignty over salvation moves his heart to pray that God will open his people's blind eyes and show mercy upon them. He knows that only God can open hearts to the truth. And so he prays, 10 verse 1. Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Deeply religious, very zealous, very sincere about their faith and their morality. But religious zeal does not count. Sincerity does not count when it comes to moral behaviour. In fact, Paul sees that actually their zealous commitment to keeping the law is actually anti-gospel. It turns them away from the gospel. It's a barrier 
It looks very righteous, but it is in fact a proud refusal to accept Christ as the one who has fulfilled the law on their behalf. You see, the law was to always point people to their need for Christ because it showed you just how far short you fell of God's glory. The law should make us realise that we can't gain right standing with God through our own efforts. It should lead us to cry out for a saviour. And when that saviour appears, to place our faith in him. In fact, by faith alone, says Paul, has always been the way of salvation. And that brings us to the next section. The next section shows this, verse 5 to 13. That righteousness by faith alone is what the Old Testament teaches. Righteousness by faith alone is what the Old Testament teaches. Let's look at verse 5 to 7. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now Paul's quoting parts of Leviticus and Deuteronomy here. And Paul points out that from the Old Testament, you should have realised the impossibility of attaining right standing with God by your works. It's true that Moses said that the person who keeps the commandments shall live by them, verse 5. God is perfect in holiness, and therefore if you could live perfectly according to his word, then you could indeed stand before him in his presence without shame. But the mistake that the Jews made was in thinking that they could actually attain to this by their efforts. So they underestimated their own sinfulness and they overplayed their own righteousness. They thought that they could climb to God on the ladder of the law, but they did not accept that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, the reality was that it could never happen Our fallen state made righteousness by the law impossible. And Moses would later talk in Deuteronomy of the the monumental effort required, which is what Paul picks up in verse 6. It would be like climbing into heaven to become perfect. Or like descending into hell to defeat death. You just can't do it. You don't have the power. Impossible. But that's what it would take. And of course, that is what Christ would do. He would come down from heaven. He would live a perfect life of obedience to the law. He would die the death we should die. He would pay for our sin, descend into the abyss, and rise to defeat death on our behalf. See, the Old Testament law actually showed us that we are not Christ, and therefore we need Christ. See, Moses preached to Israel about their need for a saviour, their need for Christ. Yet rather than looking to Christ in faith, the Jews missed it. And they missed it because they were confident in their own righteousness. 
On the other hand, righteousness that's based on faith gets this. It says, I can't do those things. I can't keep the law. I can't solve the problem of my sin and death. I can't stand before God. I can't get into heaven. It's not by my effort that I attain this. It's impossible for me. And again, Paul points out that Moses spoke of these things. That he taught that the way of salvation has always been far simpler and far easier and accessible to all. And it is easy for us because it depends on God, not upon us. It is simply by faith in the word of God, in his promises. Look at the ease by which someone is saved in comparison from verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, is declared right with God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't this good news? The doors of his grace have been thrown open wide to the world, to both Jew and Greek, to all people. See, God knew that it was impossible for the Jew to get right with him by their works. Even more so, he knew it was impossible for the Gentiles who didn't even know the works demanded by the law to get right with him. And so in his grace, he had in mind to work the works required on our behalf. And he spoke to Israel of his gospel to come through his word, which he gave to Israel. He pointed to his son and to what he would accomplish through the cross. And so it is easy for us. All any person has to do is call on the name of the Lord and be saved, to respond in faith to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so salvation comes through hearing and accepting the word about Jesus. That's our third point, verse 14 to 17. If all could be saved by simple faith, why isn't everyone? Well, with our camera lens firmly fixed on humanity, there are three reasons, I guess. They either haven't heard, or they haven't understood, or they haven't wanted to believe. 
And Paul lays out for us in verse 14 to 17, in reverse order, the chain of events required. Do you see it there? Just have a look down at those verses. See, salvation requires calling on Christ for mercy. Calling on Christ requires believing in him. Believing in him requires hearing about him. Hearing about him requires someone preaching about him. And preaching to people who need to hear about him requires someone being sent to do so with the good news. Now Paul later on in this letter will speak of his desire to go to Spain to preach the gospel so that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Now all this might surprise us a little bit. Sometimes people say stuff like this. If God is sovereign in election, then why bother evangelising? If God chooses whom he saves, then he's going to save someone anyway, so it doesn't really matter what we do, does it? Maybe you've heard someone say something like that. When William Carey wanted to go to India with the gospel, he was told this by his church. Young man, when God chooses to save the heathen of India, he will do so without your help. Now, if you just had Romans 9, that may well be what you think. But thankfully, Carey knew Romans 10 also. That when God decides to save people, he sends other people to preach to them about Jesus. See, Paul, who has as high a view of God's sovereignty in election as anyone does not see a contradiction in going to unevangelized peoples and preaching the gospel. In fact, he sees it as critical, as this is the only way that someone can be saved. And in fact, even more, it's exactly his high view of God's sovereignty that drives him to evangelize, for he believes, as Kerry would later believe, that the preaching of God's gospel is the means that God, in his sovereignty, has decreed that people can be saved. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, reaching their ears. No other way. But while there is implication for evangelism here, and that's certainly how Paul applies his understanding in chapter 15 when we get there, that isn't actually the main thing that Paul says this for in this part of the letter. And we know that because of what verse 15 and 16 say. Just have a look at verse 16 again. Verse 15 again, sorry. The end of his chain. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Sounds all good so far. But hang on, verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says... Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? Isaiah 52 and 53, which Paul refers to here, is the final servant song in Isaiah, the most famous of the servant songs. And I think he chooses these two verses, which come at the beginning of that song, to put in our minds the whole of that song. 
Because that song in Isaiah is the part of the Old Testament where the death of Christ as a sacrifice for sins is most clearly displayed. Now, I had the pleasure a couple of years ago of meeting a lovely elderly lady called Peggy. And Peggy was a Jewish lady, but she'd become a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. She's part of the remnant, and with, uh, to my great joy. In her earlier years, she'd been a devout Jew, and she'd been involved a lot in the Jewish community, and she worked for a Jewish organization. And Peggy had been in synagogue every week. She had a good knowledge of the scriptures, except for one chapter, Isaiah 53. Now she told me that Isaiah 53 was never read aloud in the synagogue. Never read aloud. Not mentioned, not read. Now maybe in other synagogues uh, that isn't the case. But here, why did they not do that? It's not that they didn't know what it said. And it was Peggy's view that it was not that they didn't know what it meant. It was that Christ was indeed a rock of offence. Paul concludes here in verse 18 to 21... And he says that Israel heard this call to faith in Christ, but rejected it. And so God turned to the Gentiles. Verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Yes, they did indeed Here, the gospel of grace, the free grace that's available to anyone, has been preached to the whole world. So they must have heard. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, Paul says, yeah, they understood. And we know that because when the Gentiles started turning in faith to Christ, saying that Jesus was Lord, the Jews became envious. They hated it. Just read the book of Acts and you'll see the hostility that arose when Gentiles began to repent and believe in Jesus. And in fact, when you read the book of Acts, you'll see one man leading the charge, Paul himself. So he knows of what he speaks. They understood okay. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. On the day of judgment, Paul's people cannot complain to God that they weren't given a fair shot. They can't say they didn't hear. They can't say they didn't understand. And they can't say that God was not patient enough with them, nor loving enough towards them. But of Israel, he says, 
all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. See, there is no excuse. There's no grounds to object when the hammer of God's judgment comes down on that final day. Far from it. Paul says through tears and with deep anguish that they heard, that they understood, that they had plenty of opportunities to turn to God and God made it so easy for them. He did all that was required by the law through Christ. But sadly, and so sadly, they refused to run into his open arms. Why? For they did not want Jesus as Lord. And so God turned to others who would. And yet, perhaps that's not the end of the story for Israel. Perhaps his arms are still held out and there's still opportunity to run back to him. Well, more of that next week. As we close, I just wonder, is the situation of Israel described here, is there any similarities to 21st century Scotland. Places of worship in every town and city, a centuries-old heritage of God's word being preached, the way that the Christian message has shaped the cultural institutions of the land and the morality of its people. Not too dissimilar, I think. Now, there are, of course, many people who have not heard the gospel. Of course there are. They need to hear. Evangelism and church planting are so critical in many areas, many communities across Scotland. But is it not also true that there are many, both Jew and Gentile, who have heard, who have understood, who have, in fact, had many opportunities to respond to the outstretched arms of God, and yet who have refused his invitation, for they do not want Jesus as Lord. And this passage would say that it is pride, trust in themselves, in their own righteousness, instead of bowing the knee and receiving the gift of Christ's perfect righteousness. So this passage would lead us as Christians, I think, to pray, as Paul does, with tears, with much anguish, that God may save many from the position of hard-heartedness. And this passage too, I think, would lead us to continue to preach Christ crucified and Christ as Lord, so that they may receive the offer and bow the knee before him. But I wonder too if the kind of person that this passage describes might be some of you listening this evening. I'm going to speak to you for a moment. Be sure of 
this, there is only one way to be saved. That you must humble yourself before God, confessing your sins, recognising that it's impossible for you to meet God's standards by your own goodness. You must believe that Jesus Christ has died in your place, the death you deserve, and risen from death to take his place as God's king, your king. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And when you do that, the promise is very clear, you will be saved. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we ask that you would, again, as we began thinking about uh, us needing to humble ourselves before your word, we ask, Lord God, that once again you would humble us before you, that we would know that if we are saved and in your kingdom, it is nothing to do with our works or our goodness and all to do with what you have done through Christ in your mercy. Oh Lord God, we grieve over the state of our own nation. We grieve at the hard-heartedness we see when people hear and understand and yet still refuse to come and receive your grace. Oh Lord God, we pray for those people who we know and love who have heard the gospel many times and yet have remained hard-hearted and remained proud and refused to bow the knee to King Jesus. Oh Lord God, would you humble them, we pray. Would you, by your Spirit, convict them of their need for salvation, that they may turn to you in faith. Oh Lord God, we pray too for us as we seek to hold out the gospel to others. Give us courage, we pray. Help us to keep speaking your truth, even when it's rejected. Help us to keep proclaiming Christ, even though he may be a stumbling block and offensive to many. Oh Lord, we pray that there would be many who hear of him and respond in faith. For your glory's sake. Amen.